0: Students don't just deserve classrooms where they could achieve. First of all, they deserve classrooms that are radically better. I don't think there's any such thing as social justice without student achievement.
1: Welcome to the very first episode of the Sweat the Technique podcast. I'm Ravi Gupta, and I am the CEO and founder of Lost Debate, the network that's putting out this podcast. But before I did all this, I had a few experiences that inform why I'm even doing this podcast in the first place. First, I was a school principal, and then I was a superintendent of a network of high-performing charter schools throughout the South in Mississippi and Tennessee. I also designed and ran the largest training operation for progressive political campaigns that our country has ever seen in an organization called The Arena. Now, don't worry, this is not a political podcast at all, so join us no matter what your politics are. But what we wanted to do with this podcast is create an opportunity for people to learn about how to get better faster, no matter what you're trying to do. Because I and a bunch of my colleagues who are joining me on this journey as co-hosts, learned a lot when we were running schools and then running other organizations about just how do we train kids and train adults to learn discrete skills and then put them together to create something complex and beautiful. And so we think that those lessons can apply to all walks of life, whether it's a person trying to coach a sports team, learn a hobby better, parent better, be better in their relationships. Whatever it is you're trying to do, there are certain principles of learning and learning faster that we want to share with you. And I have a few co-hosts on this journey. And one of them is a hero of mine named Doug Lemov, who I had a chance to talk to for this interview today. And Doug is the author of the international bestseller, Teach Like a Champion, which is now in its third version And he's also written books like The Coach's Guide to Teaching, Practice Perfect, Reading Reconsidered, Teaching in the Online Classroom, and Reconnect. And he is the seminal expert on K-12 teaching in this country. And don't take my word for it, the New York Times wrote a whole magazine profile about him. And he changed the way I ran my schools. Like My schools would not have been successful if not for him breaking teaching down into a series of discrete skills that we could then teach our teachers and replicate. And I know a lot of schools, whether they're traditional schools or charter schools throughout the country, have done the same. But a funny thing happened a few years ago. Professional sports teams started reaching out to Doug to have him train their coaches and their players on how to get better. And so he's now basically lived the mission of this podcast and taken what we learned in the K to 12 setting and applied it outside of K to 12 and there's a really cool article in the Atlantic all about work that he's doing to help you know the Atlantic puts it save American soccer, which good luck Doug on that on that endeavor. Um, but Doug is extremely thoughtful. I really love this interview. And this is really meant to be part one of a series of conversations Doug and I have about the work that he did and how it applies in and out of the classroom. And so this is really meant for people who are trying to learn anything. So it's not just about K-12 teaching. And I think you're going to love it. So let's jump right in. All right, Doug Lamov, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Welcome me to my own podcast. (laughs) You're You're on the receiving end of this now. All right, so in your seminal work, Teach Like a Champion, which changed my life and the lives of so many of my kids, you start this book by saying, great teaching is an art. And in the other arts, painting, sculpture, the writing of novels, great masters leverage a proficiency with basic tools to transform the rawest of materials into the most valued assets in society. And it basically touches off like basically an essay to start this book where... You're speaking to an audience and tell me a little bit about the time and place. Like what was the assumption about teaching at the time that you were addressing at the start of this book?
0: It's actually challenging in some ways. To, you know, it's 13 years ago, right? more than that, because I was you know, writing it for quite a long time. But at the time, you know, I was leading a school, leading a network of schools. There were a bit like the schools that, that you ran, which was you know, really trying to change the equation of opportunity for kids. And we would hire often very young, really talented people who were really motivated and they would go into the classroom and it was really, really hard. And they would have every dream of like, you know, uh, you know, I know that when they close their eyes at night, they imagine, you know, these like beautiful classrooms full of like high achievement and rigor and like paving, you know, paving the way to, uh, you know, to great things for their kids. And the reality was a lot different from that. It was really, really hard to do. And there was no playbook. And they would often, you know, just sort of come back into our office and say, I have no idea what to do when. And the when was, you know, when you have a girl like Jasmine who works so hard every day and she just doesn't seem to understand what she reads. Or you have a boy like Kevin who does everything he can to hide in the classroom, you know, and like just wants to be left alone no matter what you do. Or, you know, a kid like John who's just thrives off negative attention, right? And just is like tries to be a magnet for it in every way. And you want to show him that you care about him and you, but like in the end, he is stealing the one shot at learning for 29 kids every time he cuts up in class and you, you can't win that battle with him. And, you know, you go home at the end of the day and you feel like, you got the better of me. And it just seemed like there wasn't really a playbook for a lot of the solutions that teachers would come to us with, you know, I'd go back through, you know, stuff that I read. It just wasn't, it wasn't germane, you know, it wasn't all Paulo Freire, but you know, it was like, it was highly philosophical.
1: And that's also the stuff they're teaching in education schools at the time, right? Very theory-based. Yeah, right?
0: yeah. Should the classroom be a democracy? Well, until you can like shape the classroom to build the culture intentionally, it doesn't really matter whether you imagine it's a democracy or, you know, there's a lot of philosophical discussion. I just think, like, the details of how a great class is taught, they don't need to be dressed up in robes, they don't need to be, you know, they don't need a fancy philosophy about them. Whether you can ask great questions and set young people's minds on fire with the way that you read a book, like, that is that is work enough. So people would come to us with questions, you know, myself and others with questions like that. And we just, I just felt like I did and we did not have answers for them. And that was not okay because the futures of the young people that these teachers were serving were in the balance. And these were people who are going to leave the profession and they were talented and they deserve to be successful. You know, I think it's a test of an organization. If it can, if you can't make committed, hardworking people better, right, that's on you. So I, I set out to try and answer this question by just going to watch as many great teachers as I could. I was recovering from an NBA at the time. <laughs> I feel better now. Thank you. But I just, you know, I've been like thinking about data sets. And so like, I just, you know, I did this big regression of like poverty on the x-axis and achievement on the y-axis and, you know, found schools where despite or classrooms, you know, despite kids living in difficult circumstances, they were still doing great things. And I just tried to sneak into a bunch of those classrooms just to like see what they did and to try and originally I was trying to take notes. They were incredible. As you would imagine, and oftentimes they were, you know, by the book, they were what you had learned you're supposed to do as a teacher. And sometimes they're exactly the opposite or totally counterintuitive. And it was those moments in particular, I was like, no one is ever going to believe me. (laughs) So I, I, you know, took a camera with me and the first shot the first footage that i shot was you know like grainy bad wedding footage of you know standing in the back of some master teacher's classroom (laughs) but you know i I played a lot of sports growing up and i just i really believed in the value of game film if i can just capture this on on video and then just like chop it up into tiny sequences and be like okay here's a situation where kid says i don't know what are you going to do about it right here are three different versions of things you can do about it that that would help you know, to just like honor and study the craft of teaching. So anyway, that's kind of what I did. And I started writing this informal, these informal notes that, uh, you know, we can get it into want. but ultimately that became this book, Teach Like a Champion.
1: And um, at the time it was, called co- it's funny, you and I met before the book was published. So I was a, what was called a Building Excellence Schools Fellow, which is a training program for leaders. And they're like, Doug Leboff's coming in. And I didn't know anything about education. I I'd never taught before. I was coming from the world of politics and law. And, you know, every year they took a chance on somebody like me, like, and tried to teach us how to run schools. It's like, Doug is coming in and you came in and at the time you called it the taxonomy of effective teaching, if I remember correctly, and used to do it as a set of trainings. Tell me like how this evolved. So this is like a document. Did you know you were writing a book when you first started to collect these
0: skills? Yeah, that was kind of like, no, the answer was no. I had no idea that I was writing a book. I was just trying to like get this stuff down for, you know teachers, you know, both the teachers that I was working with and then just sharing it with sort of my informal network of people who were trying to run schools that were changing the changing the equation. And I guess it was it was a little bit like a Sama's dot document that like, I guess it got passed around because, you know, people would email them and be like, I have your taxonomy and I have a question for you. And I'd be <laughs> like, great, who are you? <laughs> how did you get this document? First of all, I was like, I'm humbled in some ways, but I also know how, how, how many gaps there were in that document. I just think it shows the gap you know, the like the dearth of support and solutions about the reality of real world classrooms for teachers. And so like, that was, it was the closest thing that I think many teachers had seen to a, like, here's an everyday playbook for like, what do you do uh, at 1030 on Tuesday morning when you say, guys, let's sit down and get started. And the kids look at you and they laugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or when you sit down and get started and you just like, you know, you're crush in the mood because your questions aren't good. So I think what that told me was that there's there's demand out there. And if I could say, like, I think one of the misperceptions about the book, like, look, there are a lot of people who don't like the books. I'll assume they don't like me.
1: Well, let's get to that. I have so many thoughts about that. Maybe we'll be able to cover that in part one, but that's a whole separate discussion
0: in many ways. But sure. Well, one of the things that they say about me is that, you know, like, my goal is to, you know... Assert your control over children. Yes. Assert my control over children. Um, mwahaha. ha. <laughs> Good job. Um, And I always find it deeply ironic. You know, there are 12 chapters in the book. Two of them are about behavior and like building the right behavior. And and, like, I would just say those chapters are hugely important because if you can't build a positive environment that makes kids feel safe and respected and honored and important and where every minute matters, like you are not going to catch kids up across the achievement gap. But there are two chapters out of 12 and I deliberately put them at the end of the book. And if you believe like... For some people, that's like all the book is about. And this is the chapters called Systems and Routines, probably. It's one called Systems and Routines and one called High Behavioral Expectations, which we can we can get into. But I just think it's so fascinating that like two that to some people that is all the book is about. And it's two chapters out of twelve.
1: Notice they don't talk about, and I've had these discussions and debates for a long time. What they don't talk about is precise praise. Right, that when you, which is a technique, and we're gonna go through this process. Like when we talk, we're gonna start to mention these techniques because I think that's the way to make it real. And I wanna pause and say whether you're an educator or not, these skills, are things you can use in life, which is what this podcast is really about. This is really what the genesis of this whole podcast is. And so as we talk, we'll talk about the real-life application of it, which you did in your trainings, for example. And as a dad. As a dad, yeah, which we'll talk about. But like precise praise is a good example something I use every single day. Whereas instead of being like, you're smart, which is unhelpful for kids for reasons we can go into, and actually unhelpful for anybody to talk in that level of generality, you could say, look, I really loved that... You struggled through that math problem, even though I know that you had to erase it three times and you got it right on the fourth time, or even better, like you erased it three times and you still didn't get right on the fourth time and your pencil was moving until the bell rang. Love that. And that's so much better than you're smart or you're hardworking or whatever.
0: I think one of the things that I tried to do in the book was take mundane things that often get overlooked and be intentional about them. And I think praise is like one of those classic things like First of all, praise is useful to motivate people and make them feel good, but it's not its primary application, I don't think. I think Praise is most effective as a tool to help young people know what to replicate. You know, so often students get something right and don't know that it made a difference and don't know to replicate it, right? And so making the line of causation clear to someone. You're reading the book, you're underlining it. I can see that you're taking notes in the margin and suddenly you are participating in class and your insights are fantastic, right? There's a connection there. I want you to see the connection between the work that you put in and the steps that you're taking to, to harvest your attention when you're working and the outcome, which is like suddenly you are doing it, right? And so one, I think that's the level of intentionality about praise, but also like, it also means that if you overuse praise and you dilute your praise and like everything is great and everything is fantastic, then in that moment when you say like, this is it, this is like, you are doing it right now. Sometimes, you know, like the young person isn't even listening because they're so used to like praise bombs coming at them all the time. Right. And there's a ton of research on this, which is like people, when you praise someone, they often think that they're failing because they assume that you're trying to love them up as opposed to tell them, this is the moment when you're doing it.
1: It's funny when you first shared this technique with me, the thing that immediately came to mind was this moment when I was a kid and I drew a picture of a dinosaur and I knew I didn't try hard on this picture. I did it just, it was a box checking exercise for this thing in school. And I know it sucked. And my aunt, Marsha, God bless her, comes in and she's like, you're so talented. That's amazing. And immediately I was like, Wow, this is a joke. Like, I can't take anything. And I love you, Aunt Marsha, if you're listening. I know the intentions were well. But like, she didn't know this technique. She was trying her best to try to like motivate me. But what it did was I didn't pick up my pencil ever again. Because I was like, yeah, she, she I didn't take anything seriously,
0: she said after that. Well, and it, change, it, changes, the, it changes the meaning of what she says to you. And and can't, can't, like, not to globalize it, poor Aunt Marsha, <laughs> like your perception of the adult world and whether they tell you the truth. So like one of the very small things that I think educator, that all people can think about is the difference between acknowledgement and praise. And acknowledgement is like thank you for doing what you're supposed to do thank you for doing the course thank you for doing the you know i appreciate that you're you're with us you're paying attention in class i see that you have your pencil today right that is an acknowledgement that you've done the basics but as soon as i praise that i'm so proud of you you have your pencil today right then all of a sudden like we have it sounds disingenuous and it sounds like my standards are incredibly low and in fact i make it seem like i'm surprised that you met my expectations and so therefore my praise has the effect of like diluting my expectations so just being intentional about like saving your praise for things that are truly excellent and just acknowledging thank you oh look at your drawing you drew a dinosaur right that is sufficient to acknowledge, to acknowledge someone praise is one of those things we just kind of like we think more more is merrier and it's it's not
1: well i and you don't i don't think you think about it this way necessarily maybe you do but i think the 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 other side of the coin of precise praise is a technique you could call what to do directions and this this is, if I remember correctly, specific, concrete, and observable directions, which is another thing you could use in life. I think you and I were joking about this when we were first talking about the podcast, which is there's this show called Lance, Last Chance You, Last Chance University, which is on Netflix. And it's all about these community colleges that have these football coaches who are just bombastic assholes who yell at their kids and they just say things like, hustle. I'll
0: pull your ear out. That's ridiculous. Both you two were setting to him, and he just ran right around you. You either in or you f***ing out. I'm not f***ing playing with you no more. You mad at me for coming to you. Four weeks left.
1: Or something like that. Mm, right. And the kids have no idea what they're supposed to do. The, the The coaches are just getting madder and madder and madder, like elevating their voices, in some cases getting physical with the kids. And I just want to stop them and be like, let's do a training on what to do directions. So instead of saying hustle, like, let's stop and say, all right, what hustle is not enough. This is football. This is a very choreographed game. Like, what do you need them to do? Do you need them to get lower in their stance? Do you need them to, you know, put their, their hands at a different level of the pads? And so this is why when you talk about people saying like the critiques of this, that it's either like somehow like the opposite of social justice or that it's like the exertion of control. I say it's the opposite because it's empowering to children to take, to do the work, to break down for them what it is you expect them to do. And by the way, it's not specific to children. So we're not even, we're the, we're doing the opposite of infantilizing. We're, we're providing for children what we want, right? Like we have an episode later on in the series about surfing, for example. And when I talked to Ru Hill, who runs this amazing surf camp, the best surf camp in the world, surf resort, he likes to call it. So I don't want to make him mad. He has created what to do directions for surfing, right? He's not like, hey, like turn. He'll be like, step back in your board, put your weight back in the board and like turn your body to the beach and then turn it
0: back. You know, he's trying to break it down into what to do directions too. This is for adults and kids, you know? I think it's like directions are another example of just a mundane thing that's constantly overlooked like so much of your success in any environment where you're trying to help someone become what they want to be. It's just the clarity of your directions, whether it's like where your feet should be on the surfboard or whether it's just like what the task is that, you know, people have a right to understand. And often, as I think you've pointed out, when things break down, when you're like, pay attention, but I don't really explain what I mean to pay attention in this moment. And then you don't do it because it's a secret code. Then I get mad at you, right? And then I start to blame you as a learner and and actually relationships start to to degrade. But if I take a few seconds to think through like, so what does it mean to pay attention in class? It means you have a pencil out and you're ready to take notes. And it means you're tr- you're looking at the speaker to focus your attention on them so you listen more and you show them that you the classmate who's talking that you think that they're important. And I'm attentive to the fact that like, I'm sitting up relatively straight in my in my chair, you know, and I'm not like slouched and looking out the window, right? If I can just define that and say, this is what it means to do your best work in the classroom, right? If I can define that for people, then I can tell them how to do it, right? This is what it means as opposed to, first time, the first, one of the first times I thought about what to do directions is of in a classroom in Brooklyn and the teacher said to a student who was like, who couldn't figure out how to like do this program that they were doing on the computer, said, don't get frustrated, Avery. <laughs> I'm like, well,
1: <laughs> thanks. I joked about this guy. I played te- I, I play tennis with this guy who's, he was the world, uh, he was the Costa Rican number one tennis player for a long time. And he now teaches tennis and he says to me all the time, Relax. <laughs> And I was like, yeah. the, when you tell me to relax, the opposite of right. what I do is
0: relax. And so, I get tense because I don't know how to relax. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but when, there's another woman who, who teaches tennis at the same place who's like, breathe every time you, um, like she's basically mm. like, breathe in yeah. during this time, breathe out during this time, focus on, there's this great book, you probably are familiar with it, called The Inner Game of Tennis. Uh, it's like very mm-hmm. popular among yeah. non-tennis players. And one of the things I really love about that book is that the author says, when you feel things breaking down, focus on... The seams of the ball spinning because. It'll, especially if you're rimming the ball, if you know anything about tennis. So if you just focus on the seams of the ball spinning, first of all, it's like a very mesmerizing thing to look at, but also you're more likely to follow the ball all the way through, which is a problem people have sometimes when they get nervous. You know, when I think about your work, I think about the various videos that you've shown over the years. And so what I want to try to do is kind of talk about a few of these videos. So let me ask you about a couple of these videos that have stuck in my memory. And I promise I didn't even prepare for this. I've shown some of these videos a hundred times to my staff. One of these videos is of a teacher named Bob Zimmerlein. And from what I understand, this is of a teacher who eventually worked for you. But this is a video of him doing his sample lesson before he was hired, which means he was not in front of students who knew him. And I I remember this guy coming into the classroom and he did something really smart. Do you
0: remember what he did? It's every teacher's nightmare, right? He's basically, to the kids, he's a substitute teacher, like some guy who walked in, right? Right. The worst situation of all time. And so he says, uh, he gives really clear what to do directions. Please have a pencil out, a piece of paper and a pencil, nothing else. So he simplifies the directions.
1: And just pause there for a second. Like that's so important. Instead of saying, have your stuff out or, yeah. or even your piece of paper and a pencil. That's not enough. I
0: find that just like a mundane, important detail there. Radical simplification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have a Have a piece of paper on your desk and a pencil, nothing else just like you're doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Here, and he's almost like narrating. He's going left to right here, like across the classroom, like narrating this wave of follow-through. Okay, guys, before I get started today, here's what I need from you. Just like Mr. Is it Vasca? Yes. Just like Mr. Vasca said, I need that piece of paper turned over and a pencil out, nothing else. So if there's anything else on your desk right now, please put that inside your desk. Your notes, Is a blank piece of paper that's been turned over and a pencil out, just like you're doing. Excellent job, thank you very much, thank you, sir. I appreciate it, nice. And so, I think it's really interesting because I even see that video, I haven't watched that video in years. I love that video. But I think about it differently now because what he doesn't do is walk in and say, hi guys, I'm Mr. Zimmerly. I'm from Rochester turn around right Rochester on the board right yeah. you know underline it <laughs> I love teaching today I'm going to be like by the time that's over you you've lost
1: totally right? which is another tool you could talk about economy of language
0: yeah so so he gives us direction right away and immediately starts narrating to, uh, to students the normalcy of follow through and so like you know I think one of the things we know about people generally and young people also is that we're intensely social and motivation is the strongest influence on motivation and behavior is your perception of the group norms. What's normal among the group, right? We, you know, evolution is a group, was primarily a group event. You know, we like to think that we survived, that we survived all those millions of years of evolution because we had big brains and opposable thumbs and each of us is you know, perfect in that way. But we would have been, we were not only would have been, were toast on the Savannah with our big brains and our opposable thumbs until we learned that we could and must stick together in small groups and collaborate and you know throwing stones ironically was one of the like most important moments in our history evolutionarily because when we learned to do that we became the only creature on the earth that can attack or defend from a superior creature from a distance and when we started to do that we started to work together in groups and that was what caused us to succeed evolutionarily and so we have evolved to be incredibly attentive to signals of belonging in groups because being cast out of the group it's a death sentence evolutionarily we're still wired for that so we're constantly attentive to what are the norms and as soon as that's the first thing that bob did when he walked in that classroom is he asked students to do something very simple and then started to draw their attention to the norm of follow-through oh it's a pretty simple thing that i asked you to do anyone can do it and look oh thank you very much isn't this great everyone's doing it and all of a sudden you can just see it this wave across the classroom of kids deciding to buy in. Even like the kid who's a little bit confused and the kid who's a little bit skeptical, you can actually just see their body language change as they look around and they're like, "Oh, I choose to belong. I choose to. I choose to meet the norm. I choose to read the norm of the group and to go along with it for this first step." And so that, yeah, I hadn't thought about that video in years.
1: Well, let's talk about another video that sticks in my mind. And I think these are all in your. You have different trainings you do, but I think these are like some of your seminal clips that you've showed over the years one is a teacher who I think eventually worked for you, still may work for you, named Colleen Driggs. She's and in the she, office right now. <laughs> oh, good. I'll tell her I said hello. Yeah. Uh, this is a video of her walking around a classroom and using nonverbal corrections for students all over the place, like just throwing them all over the place. So I both would love you to talk about this clip, but also talk about this framework you have for the sort of Hierarchy. I forget the words used. It's it's not hierarchy, but I think of it as a hierarchy of interventions from the least obtrusive, if I'm using the language correctly, which is nonverbals, I think, to the most obtrusive, which I think is what a lot of teachers do, which is something more personal and public to the student. So you maybe talk about the clip, and maybe we don't have to go too much into the clip, but talk about that hierarchy.
0: I called it the like the least invasive intervention, and the, one of the things you want to do is you want to you want to f- fix things. While they're small, with the least invasive intervention, because some you know things go wrong in the classroom and kids get distracted and they got off task for benign and understandable reasons, and because sometimes kids are flown around and they want to test things, right? There's a range of possible reasons, but I want to be able to fix it simply and easily, and not have the fix be worse than the initial problem. So you know sometimes you might see like a student off task, and a teacher will stop the class and say, "Ravi, the expectation is that we're taking notes. You know what? Do you, what's in what's in your desk?" put it back in, you know, and so that now all of a sudden, like everyone turns and watch. So now they're, if you, if it started with one person, one student, Ravi off task, now there's no one on task because there's no task anymore, right? The task is look at Ravi. <laughs> and of course, if you're like some, if you're, if there are some kids, you're embarrassed and you don't like it. And if you're like some kids, you're like, look, everybody's looking at me. Here's my moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so the question is, can you fix that without drawing any attention to Ravi to maintain the task for the other 29 kids? And so that's what You know, teachers in the school where Colleen taught, teachers, young teachers would be brought to watch her teach because the culture in her classroom was amazing. And I remember, you know, in workshops, we would describe her as like, people think that she has fairy dust that she sprinkles over the kids because kids who are like sometimes distracted in other people's classes are like, they're joyful, positive, engaged, focused learners in Colleen's class. How does she do it? Well, a lot of it is just like as soon as the students, you know, like starts to get off task, she might use a small gesture to remind him where he should be looking or how he should be sitting or like a little tiny, like you should have your pencil in your hand gesture while she's still teaching, which causes the student to feel like, Oh, okay. Teacher is helping me to know what I should be doing, but not trying to like put me on blast or put me on, on right. They're trying to preserve my privacy and my dignity. And for the kids who like to be on stage, they're not getting on stage. And the task continues for all the other kids. And so in this this video that are, you know, it's probably, we spliced together maybe like five to six minutes of her instructions. But like one of the things we would have teachers do is just count the number of nonverbal interventions. And it was like 15 or 13, depending on how you count. It's really three gestures that she's making over and over to students. So she can do it without a load on her working memory. But the idea is just like fixing problems with very small interventions as opposed to larger interventions. And so then there becomes this whole hierarchy of like what are the what are the what are the least invasive ways for me to solve a problem? Because any room full of 30 people is going to have some people some people doing suboptimal behaviors. And my goal is to have them be as optimal as possible. And I
1: actually think this principle applies across the board to a lot of adult environments. Like a good example is like the all staff email or the staff meeting where you're like, Hey, some, you know, like we're having this issue in our company today, or this, you know, lately of X, Y, and Z people showing up late or blah, 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 blah. And to me, that's the equivalent of saying, Hey, Doug, we need you on task and everybody's stopping and looking and be like, oh, being off task is actually a pretty common occurrence. I'm shaping the
0: nor- your perception of the norm. Your
1: perception of the norm is like a lot of people are late right. in this company. So like the- Drawing more attention to it. Yeah, the more effective intervention in the case of your company is, hey, first addressing it privately, right, with that person. And if it's a, it's a big enough issue- Trying to train it in the positive, which will something we'll talk about. Like it's important to be on time in this company because we believe X, Y, and Z and we're respectful of each other's times. But before we move off of this least invasive piece, you want to just give us a quick hits on, you know, nonverbals being on the low end, like
0: walk us through a couple of these interventions. So one of the next things is a, a positive group correction and a least invasive individual. Uh,
1: yeah, private individual correction.
0: Yeah. Positive group correction is is I would just remind everyone of what the task is. So we should all, uh, I need to see everyone writing or check yourself to make sure you've got a pencil in your hand. And then if I wanted to like, let's say there were a couple of students who, who still weren't doing it, then I might make uh, an anonymous individual correction, which would be something like anonymous, meaning I'm not going to name the student, but it's individual in the, sense, in the sense that it's referring to one student's behavior. So I might say like, I'm waiting on two, or I still need two more pencils. Thank you. And maybe I even have like a little flashing moment of eye contact with the student who has not done it yet. What I'm not doing is putting them on stage, right? What I'm not doing is having everyone turn and look at them. I'm again, like assuming good faith in the student, what they feel is my effort to preserve their dignity and their privacy and to give them to assume the best, right? Like here's a run, make sure you have your pencil, see you, but also accountability, which is I see you. I notice that you're not on task. I'm aware of it. And so if I can do that anonymously and very quickly, we often often pair those to the private group correction with the, with, the, with the anonymous individual. So you'd be like, pencils
1: down, eyes on me, waiting on two. Yes, exactly. And what I really love about that one, that's my favorite one. I'm sure you've heard this by, from a lot of people, in part because... Often it's not two, and you might not even know how many it is. So, But you could just say two, because everybody's going to assume they're the two. And sometimes even the kid who's done the thing, but could do it a little bit better.
0: Well, they ask themselves the question, is it me? In fact, we have a video that we used to show of like a teacher saying this, I'm still waiting on two, and like 11 kids just check themselves and self-correct and like, I could actually do this a little bit better. Okay. Right. So like one of the things we say is like, actually you shouldn't say I'm waiting on 11, yeah. right? Because that Never. just draws people's attention to the the norm is negative. We like, used to
1: joke at Nashville prep that it was always two. And actually I think at a certain point I had <laughs> to tell my teachers, <laughs> I had to tell my teachers we have to mix up the number because the kids are catching on. I used to have this kid named uh, Darius who's amazing. He's an adult now. I just uh, had breakfast with him in Nashville. He's a wonderful kid. He adult now. Uh, and he we used to have him... Uh, get up and he would mimic mr richards if you remember mr richards one of our math teachers Mm -hmm. and he would do waiting on three (laughs) it's like so the kids picked it up and so then you get on to the more invasive interventions right so um private individual correction so going up to a kid and like quietly as quietly as possible just whispering in their ear being like hey doug like you know um you know
0: please, whatever. Like, Robbie, I, you know. I've tried to remind you three times in class that you need to be taking notes. It's really important. This is going to, this is going to be critical. You know, what we're working on in class is going to be really important to you the rest of the year. And when you go to university, so I really need to see you on task with your pencil in your hand, you know, next time I'm at the board, I'm going to turn and look at you and you know, want to make sure to see that your pencil's in your hand. Thanks. But right. See you in a right. minute. You know, like, so, but I want to like crouch down at the student's desk, say that relatively privately. Like I'd don't want to like have this conversation in front of 30 other people ideally i want there to be a moment when i say something like okay everyone check your notes make sure you've got the first four um first four phases of mitosis down in your notes and we'll pick up again in 20 seconds and then i walk over to Robbie and i'm like i noticed you know and i'm not going to ask a question Robbie, are you feeling okay today right there's a time to ask Robbie if you feeling okay today it's not when you're live in front of 30 students with one chance to explain mitosis to them. Right. So I'm gonna be like, Robbie you know, it's really important that you be getting this down. It's critical to your understanding of biology and, you know, um, and so need to see your pencil moving. Be back to check on you, right? 15 seconds, private individual correction, off we go.
1: And so, and then obviously like you go up the ladder, there's like full group corrections, which are rare, I would say. And then there's like giving a student a consequence if your school has a consequence. How to give a kid a consequence. Yeah, which is like well, yeah. if your school has a demerit or merit system or a referral system to the dean or like a, a, a special place in the classroom where you can, you know, huddle with the student and have it back and forth. But that's what I think is interesting about your model is I think people think of only the consequence Mm-hmm. Right. I feel mm-hmm. like I don't know if that's your experience, but they they don't see
0: the incredibly thoughtful effort to avoid the consequence. I mean, I think that's right, which is people who are critical of this part of my work, I think, get it exactly wrong, which is when teachers have the capacity to resolve everyday distractions and non productive behavior. In simple, effective ways, then things don't get worse and you don't have to give consequences. And the idea, the reason to be skilled at managing a classroom is so that you don't have to send kids out of the classroom and they don't get in bigger trouble and they're not in for detention. And I, you know, you can't do that with every kid. There will be kids who test you. And in that case, you have to be ready. And one reason why teachers don't give consequences to those kids when they they haven't just earned them, they deserve them, right? Kids deserve to know where the limits are and how to participate productively in the institutions of their lives. And one of the ways that they do that is by you know, caring, thoughtful adults, show them limits and say, you've gone too far, yep. right? And that is a gift to young people. Um, but the, one of the reasons why teachers don't give consequences is because they're afraid, because they don't do it well, because oftentimes you know, kids get more upset. They haven't practiced it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the least understood things about the teaching profession, which is it's, it's a performance profession. You do it live in front of 30 people an audience of skeptical seventh graders, right? And so, if you want to be good at giving consequences and have them serve the purpose of student of students being successful, you should be. Into, you should think about what's the language I'm going to use. You should probably script some phrases in advance you want to use, and then you should practice it in situations where your colleagues engage in behaviors that students might normally engage in, and then you practice saying, "Ravi, it's the fourth time I've asked you. Stay as focused as you can. Get as much work as you can done. The rest of this class, I want to see you back on tasks. There's a lot, you you know." I'm going to call on you next to make sure we get to hear your voice in the class, right? So I'm going to sort of end my correction with a positive statement that I believe in the student and want them to be engaged. And I want to control my tone, but I want to practice doing that so I'm good at it because it's important. And you talk about practice, so you know, your book essentially comes out the
1: year before I launched my first school, Nashville Prep. And the way I implemented your work in practice, I went to all your trainings. You were, you were doing trainings in Albany. I think you still probably do. And you give us these CDs to tell you like, oh, <laughs> I think they were CDs at first, then they became USB drives to, to date us a little bit. And uh, I then worked with the people at Building Excellence Schools and I developed what we call Nashville Prep Training Camp, which was a one-month teacher in service. And half of the time, uh, and I was just looking over this this agenda recently, and maybe I'll, I'll share it in the show notes because it could be helpful to school principals. Is half of the time was mock classrooms where teachers would have to deliver material. At first, it was just made up material that we would just make up. And then eventually it would be the actual first week lessons that they would do. So they get multiple at-bats doing that. And I'd pass out little cards... That either said you're a compliant student or you're going to like slouch a lot or you're going to yada, yada, yada. And over time, what we would do is we would hand out more misbehavior cards as the teachers became more expert and more difficult behaviors and more nuanced behaviors. And what was interesting is these were a lot of teachers who didn't have a lot of experience uh, or some of them had like some habits they needed to unlearn. That first school performed extremely well academically. It was probably the highest performing charter school in a first year ever in Tennessee and was ranked number one for Credo and Stanford and the Tennessee value added for charter schools multiple years in a row after that. People would often come and be like, how did you find such amazing teachers? And what I would say is these are incredible people who are like, their mindsets are really good. They're, you know, really capable people. But what but the secret sauce, and they would say this too, was the way we trained, and the fact that, and and your methods, in the absence of the taxonomy, we wouldn't know what to train on. Never mind how to train. Like you could you could take thirty days, but if you're you know talking like sociological gobbledygook like
0: for thirty days, and like you teach know. kids not content. Can I say? I was just was gonna say. Like so, first of all, thank you for that. I think it's really fascinating when. when When my colleagues and I first started doing this work, we would tell rooms of teachers, we're going to practice, right? We're going to talk about some, we're going to break down some of the skills that are inherent in teaching. Some of the things you want to, that aren't the most important thing you do in a classroom, but you want to be good at them so you can do them automatically without thinking about them so you can think about the more important things. We're going to practice them. And people would look at us like we were absolutely crazy. But it's, you know, fast forward now, 2023, like it is increasingly normal across a large swath of the education sector to practice and to acknowledge the idea that it's not, it's not really fair to people (laughs) to send them into these incredibly complex, challenging environments unprepared. And part of preparation is like role-playing and going, you know, going through the scenarios that you're likely to face so that your skills are ready. And so that you're confident, right? You should not be afraid of what you're going to face and whether you can handle it when you go into your classroom. And so the other thing about, you know, the training camp that you described, teaching is a lonely, lonely profession. Oftentimes you're the only adult in the classroom. You don't get to see other people and learn from them as much as you should. And it just doesn't like, I love team sports. Right? That is my very favorite thing. One of the things I love about those training sessions is how much fun they are. And how joyful they can be for the teachers and how supported you feel when it's eight of us or 10 of us or 12 of us together in a room and we're doing our best and we're sharing ideas and we have pizza afterwards. And like, there's some laughter and there's some serious talk. And we're like, I feel connected, and supported by my teammates when I practice. I just think like practice is the joy of being a team. And then showing up on those videos. Like, I think
1: eventually some of our teachers wound up in some of your materials and I thought they were very proud of that. And that, you know, it was funny. You remind me, in later years, we had actual students come in for the summer Mm -hmm. camp and participate. And I would give them a taxonomy training because they had to know what we were working on. So they would come in and be the students. And it was like incredible to see them be like, oh yeah, that's what you were doing uh, in the classroom. (laughs) That's so funny. Um, I mean, there were risks involved because like, you know, some students, you know, they ebb and flow in terms of their uh, levels of Buy into the culture, so some of them it was almost like you know Darth Vader at a certain point. Some of these kids knew too much, but um it was fun, and it was cool to see it evolve over time. Let's talk about a couple more techniques before we start talking about the reception of all this kind of stuff. So one that really stands out to me is positive framing. Do you want to explain why? It's one of the first things you talk about in these trainings and probably in the book too, if I, I don't remember the sequence of the book, but I, it's so prominent in your trainings.
0: Yeah. It's so important too. positive framing. I would describe as like your ability to give constructive feedback in a way that expresses your faith in the learner and motivates the learner. And that is different from giving positive feedback. So some of the things that teachers get in terms of advice is they're often told things like praise five times for every time you criticize. Or make a praise sandwich, which is like, say something nice, then say the thing you want the student to fix, and then say something nice again.
1: And people do that in professional worlds too now. It's like part of coaching
0: conversations. All the time. In the sports sector, and the business sector, right? And so like, let's just think about some of the implications of that. So one, just practically, if I have to say five nice things to you every time, every time I want to say to you, like, you need an active verb. (laughs) like I mean, it's incredibly inefficient and I have to throw all this praise at you that like, you come to know as disingenuous. And so you discount my praise and you kind of discount me because I become inauthentic to you. And in the end, I think it suggests to students that we think that they're fragile, that, they, we, that we have to like find some way to dance around the idea of, of saying like, I think you can write a better sentence. See if you, see if you can write a sentence that has an active verb, right? That is a way of giving, con- which is like constructive criticism with a challenge in it. See if you can. Or when you get to high school, you'll have to write a really clear thesis paragraph that cites the title of the work that you're describing. See if you can do that now, right? So I don't have to say, I love this about your essay and I love that about your essay. Nor I can just say, like I can try to motivate you and express my belief in you by using these very simple techniques. You know, two of them that I've, went, one are one-talk aspirations. Where are you trying to go? I talk about this, you know, I do some work with sports coaches, right? So like at the level you're going to play at, you're going to need to be able to play that ball one touch. So let's start now. And so I don't have to praise you for five things. I can just, like, that shows you that I believe that you're going to be great. Like the player that you're going to be is going to have to be able to play that ball with their left foot and the right foot. So receive it with your, so play it with your left foot now. Right. That's a challenge. That's an aspiration statement or a challenge. Like, see if you can get rid of that ball on the first touch. I think you can do it. Try I want to get, see if you. See, you've tried twice, you know, no judgment, you know, but I'm going to, I want you to give it your best try. Right. And so those are examples to me of, of positive framing, which allows me to give key feedback efficiently to help them get better in a way that shows that I believe in them. And that I think in the end is, is far more motivating than these sort of like praise sandwich ideas.
1: Yeah. You know what we say at Lost Debate is feedback is respect.
0: Yeah. Think you're worth it yeah when
1: we when we either hold our feedback because we're afraid how somebody's going to react to it or we put the praise sandwich it's it's to me it's a sign of disrespect to say i don't think you can handle this i don't think you can handle this feedback
0: can i, can I tell you just a story about that which is i work with some sports coaches and i show them classroom videos of teachers and we, we talk about how it relates in a sports setting and so i was working with a group of professional soccer coaches by professional i mean not just that they were paid but they worked with major league soccer teams and I showed them a video of a math teacher circulating around the classroom, giving precise feedback to every student in the classroom. As I showed this video, I was like, what was I thinking? Why am I showing a math class you know, video to sports coaches? They're going to think I'm absolutely crazy.
1: Is this the Jason Armstrong one? Uh,
0: it's, a, it's, a, it's a Denarius Frazier, actually. Um, it's this beautiful video. And so I planned to show them this math video. Then like, I was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever come up with, but it's too late to change it. So I roll the video and I'm like, what do you notice? And the first thing, this is like this iconic coach who's like one of the most established coaches in MLS history says, he's talking to everyone. He's giving feedback to everyone. And I was like, at first I was like, oh, he's just trying to say something banal about the video to be nice to me. And I said, can you say more about that? And he said, well, so much of the time we don't talk to half our guys. Half the guys like all week, we don't give them any feedback. You know, some of the guys must feel invisible to us. And I'm watching this math teacher, I'm realizing like, how important everyone feels because everyone gets told that their progress matters. And you can walk around on the field and you can high five guys and you can ask them, you know, what they're into and what music they like. But unless you can make them better and show that you can make them better, you're not really going to succeed with them. And I was like, you know, like, boom, yes. Like, so classroom videos work for coaches, but also like that was an insight that I thought was like some teachers could stand to hear, which is like, so for the coaches, like a lot of people don't get feedback. Feedback is one of the ways we tell people that they matter. And one of the ways to build relationships, like there's, there's this one of these phrases you hear sometimes about teaching, which is they don't, they don't care what you say until they know that you care. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I'm not totally sure that that's entirely true, but what is, the most, what is the most effective way for a teacher to show that you care? By making them better, by teaching them well, right? That, that is how you show young people that you care about them and you believe in them. And so I think that's, you know, that's, that's what this video of Denarius Fraser's math class was all about. And why it resonated so much with the coaches. It's
1: actually, it reminds me of the one question that was non-negotiable for me in hiring every staff member who ever worked for me at Republic Schools. And the question we would ask is, we'd give people a false choice. And we'd say, in your first year of teaching, if you could only do one of two things, raise student self-esteem or raise their level of achievement, which of those two would you pick? And to me, it's totally revealing. Because first of all, how do you raise self-esteem? Maybe- there's an answer there that I would, that would be sufficient, but often the wrong answer is we got to make fe- kids feel good before they can achieve. Cause to me, it's the other way around you, you, you help kids succeed and then they have authentic self-esteem. You know what I'm saying? And that was like the gateway. You had to answer that question correctly if you wanted to work at Republic schools.
0: And I'm betting that 75% of people said self-esteem is more important than student achievement. Yeah,
1: 100%. And it's revealing. Okay, so we've talked a lot about techniques that I think people don't obviously see as quote-unquote academic techniques, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk Mm -hmm. about, even though we could make the case that all of those are academic techniques, let's talk about a couple of them that are specific to the academic world. And let's start with cold call. Which I think you've said, at least this is your favorite technique. I think I've heard you say this before.
0: Certainly one of them, yeah. yeah. One of the most important ones, I think, yeah.
1: So when this is another misunderstood technique, because I think when people hear cold calling, which is like randomly selecting people to answer questions, they think of the paper chase and like embarrassing students, which is certainly how it could be implemented. So talk a little bit about how you see cold call and why you think it's really important.
0: So I define it as calling on students whether or not they've raised their hand or offered to participate. So this is important for a while, for an immense number of reasons, right? Like I have to build a culture of loving accountability where people feel like, like they can't just choose to check out for the entire day or the entire week or the entire month or the entire year, right? So the idea that you might be asked to participate in the conversation causes people to attend and pay attention and learn. But it's also, I mean, th- I think this is what's so surprised. To me, it's like the most inclusive technique that there could be. And maybe I'll just describe that by, giving an example that's people who really, really, really don't like Doug Lamov will go off on this one. But I cold called my own daughter at dinner once. A lot of people are nodding right now. But let me just tell you this. So like, I have three kids, got two, two older kids, and my littlest daughter is five years younger than my middle daughter. And so we're at dinner and my, at this point, like my older daughter and my son, who's two years older than her, they're in high school and they're talking about all the things that happened in their day at dinner. What happened in chemistry class and, you know, what so-and-so did at soccer practice. And I'm just looking at my littlest daughter down at the end of the table. She doesn't take chemistry and she doesn't play soccer. And she's wondering, like, are my thoughts about my day valid to this conversation? Do you have to be 17 to participate in this conversation? Like, or like the, the experiences of me in like middle school legitimate for this conversation? Am I, am I, am I part of this room right now? So I cold called her and I said, well, what about you, Willow? What happened in, you know, what happened in your day? Have, has that ever happened to you in your classes, right? Anything like that. And that calling on someone when they haven't raised their hand says your voice matters here too. Of course I have to do it like lovingly and caringly and with humanity. like But the message that we want to hear your voice is actually the most profoundly inclusive thing that you can do for students. At the same time, as you are, you know, building this culture of accountability and checking for understanding and being able to make sure that you understand what any student in your classroom knows at the same time. And, you know, I have some colleagues who work in sub-Saharan Africa where girls, for example, are culturally in some countries disincentivized from speaking in class. Right? They're, not, they're just not supposed to talk as much in class. And what they found is that if they broke the social code for, for girls and they said, they called on them, right? Then it was on the teacher for the decision to break the social norm. And then the, scroll, the girls would speak and they would say very intelligent things and they would feel successful and they would see people nodding at them and agreeing with them. And suddenly they would start to feel confident and successful and then they would raise their hands. And so the idea that like when you invite someone into a conversation, you tell them that their voice is important and it matters in the room. And cold call is actually an incredibly powerful way to do that. So when people tell me that like cold call is destructive and negative and aggressive towards them, I'm like it's only that way if that's the only thing that you can imagine. And if that's all that you can imagine, then you need to go back and think about it a little bit more because there's a lot more to it than that.
1: Well, let's compare it to the most oft practiced alternative, which is every classroom you and I probably attended as children, which is... We take hands.
0: We don't even take hands. We just ask questions without specifying how to answer them. And the same three or four verbal kids say the first thing off the top of their head over and over and over and over. And no one else participates. The
1: most confident, which is often the most informed. But let's be charitable and say it is
0: the most informed. Well, or sometimes, but it's not sometimes it's the most impulsive. And it's actually like, I want kids to take... One of the things that Cold Call lets me do is is have wait time. So I ask you a hard question and I want you to think about it before you answer. But Dave is always, you know, he's impulsive and he always calls out the first thing off the top of his head. And that as soon as he's answered, then I can't make everyone wait five or 10 seconds and think deeply about the question.
1: Right. And also let's take the even more positive version of this story, which is kids raising their hands and you calling on somebody, Mm -hmm. right? Which you would think, oh, that's like an empowering classroom. But are you thinking about the kid not raising their hand? Right. First of all, they may know the answer, but they just may be afraid to share it or... Like, I think the way you put it in, the, in the, the training is that's the student you need to be thinking about the most,
0: right? Yes. Well, first of all, the kids who raise their hands are more likely to know the answer. So, if my job as a teacher is to understand whether everyone in my room has mastered some content, I need to be able to systematically call on everyone and say, okay, how are you, how are you thinking about this right now? Where are you at? What are the three steps that we've talked about? You know, can you solve this problem for me? And then I can really know about their experience. And that has to be a normal, natural part of the environment for me to do my job. Yeah.
1: And you have also another technique, which is, I forget what you call it, but essentially ensuring that you never move on when there's a wrong answer. And so I think there's, you know, I'll be like, Doug, you know, what's five times five? And you'll be like, five times five is three. And I'll be like, all right, Doug. And then you, you like, you ask like a a clarifying question that could hopefully help them think through the mechanism. And let's say Doug is still struggling with it. You'll be like, all right, Doug, hold on for one second. Sally, what's five times five? 25. Sally, how did you get that answer? Sally explains it. And he'd be like, all right, Doug, did you hear that? Doug, what's five times five? Five times five is 25. All right, let's try seven times seven. And then you get it and you're like, all right, we're good. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Sally, for helping Doug. Let's move on. You
0: know? Love the, the Ravi Gupta players there. That was <laughs> <laughs> but the, the technique is called no opt-out. And I I think it's... um. It's really important for two reasons, which is so often you call on a kid and they get it wrong and that's like the end of it. And then you go to someone else and they get it right and the kid's sitting there like stewing in their own wrong answer. And
1: like, resenting the kid who got it right, by the way, which creates a bad culture. Resenting
0: the kid who got it right, never having got believing that they can't get it right, maybe. And so like, okay, what's five times three? It's eight. It's not eight. Listen carefully. Uh, you know, Ravi, what did Kevin get wrong there? added instead of multiplied. Great Kevin, back to you now. What's five times three? Fifteen. Yeah, that's good. Let's try one more. Five times four, what's that? Twenty. Now Kevin like feels successful and he's shown that he can do it, which is important. But there's also the reality of like there's a flip side of that, which is there are some kids who, for whatever reasons, will give them the opportunity to opt out of learning if they can. Ravi, what's five times three? I don't know. There are kids who do that. And if you push back long enough on most teachers, they will cave and they will, let, they will be afraid of you if you say, I don't know, with a little bit of attitude. And they will let you sit all month, all year in the corner of the classroom, learning nothing. That is not okay, right? If I care about someone, I will not let them do that. And so no opt out gives me an option. What's five times three? I don't know. Okay. Listen carefully. I'm going to ask Robbie the question. Then I'm going to come back to you, Robbie. What's five times three, 15. Great. Back to you, James. What's five times three, 15. Great. I'm going to give you another one. See if you can get it ready. Five times four, 20. Right. I don't save any labor by trying, by trying to opt out and say, I don't know. I can't. And once I learn that I can't get myself out of doing the work by saying, I don't know, I've removed that incentive. And maybe I won't want to say like, I don't expect you to get them right, but I do expect you to try. So, you know, whatever answer you give me, I'll work with and, but I won't take, I don't know. Or if you give me, I don't know, you know, I'm going to push you to tell me what you don't know and we're going to go back and we're going. But I, I want to remove the incentive to sort of try and get out of doing any work by just saying, I don't know. Cause that's the reality of some classrooms.
1: You know, and talking about the reception of this book. So there was this period of time, like sort of the Renaissance and a lot of the stuff that you and I jointly believe in, in schools, which was the beginning part of my time in schools is probably the 2010 to 2013 period of time in which your techniques are showing up all over the place. And, you know, one critique you got at that point was this is a charter school thing. It's only for charter schools. And then I I see you starting to show videos from the Houston independent school district and other districts that you're working with. So you're showing that these techniques can work in, traditional district schools, as well as in charter schools, you eventually start using them for sports teams, so you show they can be used outside of the school system. All of this is great, Atlantic profile about how you're going to save U.S. soccer, but then there becomes an avalanche of criticism that I think reaches a crescendo around 2020. And in the newest volume of your book, you address these critics head on, and you talk about this question of what is social justice? Um, can you talk about this a little
0: bit, paraphrase a little bit about what you say in the front of
1: it? because I thought it was very powerful stuff.
0: Students don't just deserve classrooms where they could achieve. The, first of all, they deserve classrooms that are radically better. I don't think there's any such thing as social justice without student achievement in a school. And social justice is every student having the capacity to become the person of their dreams. And some of those some of those, students may get involved in public policy and issues of social justice and some of them will want to be artists and some of them will want to be scientists and some of them will want to be presidents of banks you know they have the right to do whatever they dream about and it is a big challenge to, to run a chemistry class that prepares you to become a molecular biologist for that if that's what you want and if we're really serious about that and we really believe that any student can get there we have to build environments that don't just Let students, if they're willing to like break the social norms, they should be environments that foster it, make it easier to be successful. That where kids go to school in an environment where their peers are communicating to them that they value learning and hard work and endeavor and effort. And so they feel supported and they feel a strong sense of belonging in this long, hard journey to success. I talk about what I call the band aid effect, which is as a caregiver, you have an incentive to want to try to give the sort of care that makes you feel best as a caregiver, whether or not it is optimal for the recipient. And the reason it's called the Band-Aid effect is because there's a sort of apocryphal story apparently among care, you know, among nurses and things that like tearing off Band-Aids fast is less painful for patients. So there's this psychologist who, who was a burn victim growing up. And so he had a lot of bandages removed. He was skeptical of this idea and he went out to test it empirically. And lo and behold, it turns out that taking off bandages slowly is less painful for patients. So he goes to a hospital and he's like, guys, <laughs> talks to the nurses. Guess what? I have this. It turns out that taking off bandages slowly is better for patients. Hooray. What an incredible piece of him. He leaves, he you know, expects behavior to change and he goes back and... He asks the you know, nurses, How, how's it changed? Like, has everything in there? Like, nothing has changed. We re- remove the bandages the same way we used to. And, and he's wondering why. And it turns out that removing bandages slowly is painful for nurses because you're there face-to-face for a long time with a patient and you see their anxiety and their pain. And it's actually the person that it's easier for is the nurse. And this Band-Aid paradox happens all the time for teachers, right? Are doing the things that we, you know, to prepare carefully for to be able to give a consequence. To be honest with yourself that if we care about young people we will give them consequences sometimes because they will need them that we're going to we're going to cold call students and we're going to cold call students and at first they're going to not know what to make of it but in the end they're going to understand that it's a gesture of respect when we're faced with the choice between doing very difficult things live in front of a group of skeptical audiences or rationalizing away doing those things and saying actually it's harmful to children if we have high expectations for them if we ask them to look at their classmates when they're talking which has the effect of showing their classmates that they care about what they're doing and that they believe in them. Is it challenging to do that? Yes. Can I invent a reason why that is coercive to people and why it's trying to control their bodies? Um, Sure, I can do that. Which one is easier? Coming up with the rationalization. Smart people faced with the opportunity to come up with a rationalization why they shouldn't do hard things versus having to go in and do hard things in front of large groups of people that in the long run are better for them many people will choose the easy way out. They will choose the Band-Aid paradox. They will choose to do the things that are easier for the caregivers as opposed to optimal for the patients. And I just, that's what I believe. I, you know, I believe in high expectations for students, believe they have the right to be in the places that in places that value their minds and their brains and give them the opportunity to be everything that they want to be in the world. And I think it's really hard to do it. And there are people who I will never convince of that and who are going to tell me that, you know, they're going to put all kinds of, bad names on me for that. They can do what they want. But I want the people who do have high expectations and do want young people to be able to follow their dreams and become molecular biologists. I want them to understand the connection between high expectations and caring about students so they're really clear in their minds and so they can do what's optimal for the patient and not for the caregiver.
1: Well, Doug, this has been wonderful. Uh, and I'm so excited to start this journey with you. And we have so many more things we're going to talk about, both with other experts that we're bringing to the table, but with each other. You know, some other things we'll talk about in future episodes between us are what you've revised over time and these, these multiple editions of the book, more about the sports and other areas of life that you've been applying this to, more about the debates around some of the discussions, debates, pushback against your ideas. So, uh, we'll go through all of that, but just want to you know start saying that, you know, excited for Ryan Hill, our colleague over at KIPP and Stacey Shells, our colleague over at Regeneration Schools who used to work for you as a school principal that, you know, they're going to be joining us on this journey as well. And for those, this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, we're going to be basically taking what we know from the school system and applying it to life. And so you've probably heard some of this here, how to parent, how to learn a new hobby, how to learn a new sport how to help your business grow, how to do that staff training, how to do that feedback meeting, and some of it's stuff that we know, but also some of it's just questions we want to ask and experts that we love and that we revere who we want to hear from them. And so really excited to begin this journey with you, Doug.
0: Thanks, Ravi. I'm really excited to be on the journey with you, you know, just even talking about some of the ideas you applied in your own school. It's going to be great. It's going to be great dialogue and you and myself and Ryan and Stacey and all the great guests. So here we go.